0: Okay, now it should be live. I see the, it, for some reason, completely logged me out of Google at the moment that I clicked to start the stream. So that's really weird. I've never seen it do this before. Okay, now people can see us. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) All right, oh, now I gotta gotta go through this, we gotta go through this whole thing again. We gotta remember everything that we said. We thought we were live, we thought you were able to see us, and uh, and then we said a bunch of really interesting stuff. Eric dropped a well, just a whole bunch of inside <laughs> scoops about the Falcon Heavy and when the BFR is going to be launching. And, <sighs> we gotta go through it again. All right. Well, hey everyone, Fraser here. Uh, time for another live QA. And I brought another special guest, someone who maybe you aren't as familiar with, but I hope that you will. Which is Eric Berger, who is a uh, journalist working with Ars Technica, and gonna not gonna lie, Eric is probably my favorite space journalist um, until I remember all the other people who I, you know, really like. Um, but Eric just does fantastic coverage of all things space, and generally scoops us all all the time. And uh, so I just wanted to bring Eric here. I was gonna pick his brain. Uh, about where he gets all his sources, how he gets finds out everything, and also give you guys a chance to talk to it. So so if you want to talk about spaceflight, what's happening with SpaceX, what's happening with Blue Origin, Electron, NASA, all of the rocket companies, things like this, Eric is the per- perfect person to to talk with.
1: So Eric, thanks for joining us. Well, it's my pleasure to be here, Frazier. Thanks for uh, having me on for the Q&A. All
0: right. So, uh, and so before we get on to, into the Q&A, can you give people just a brief background of of sort of who you are and what you do?
1: Sure. I have a <clears throat> excuse me. I have a background in astronomy. I studied this um back in the early 1990s. Uh, we were talking earlier kind of it was interesting that back then, you know, we didn't know whether there were exoplanets. We didn't know uh, the age of the universe. We didn't know, you know, whether the universe was going to expand forever or contract. And these are all kind of big questions that have been answered in the last 20 years or so. Um, but in the last 10 years, uh, uh, I worked first at the Houston Chronicle and now at Ars Technica, I focused more on space and spaceflight in particular. And so, you know, the, the things that NASA is trying to do first with the journey to Mars and now the journey to the moon and Mars. Maybe who knows. And then with uh, SpaceX Blue Origin and all of these other private rocket companies that are kind of coming along and nipping at NASA's heels in in different areas. So just basically the whole gamut of of spaceflight.
0: And so, you know, again, with these QA's on on Monday, we try to keep it fairly free form, but let's talk about a couple of topics, some stories that you're following. So people understand the sort of menu of options that they have to choose from. Uh, What are a bunch of the stories that are going on right now that you're sort of chasing?
1: Well, I think the biggest story of the first half of the year probably was the development of the Block 5 rocket, which launched a few weeks ago. Um, SpaceX put that up and then they landed it. And this was the first launch of what they hope is their reusable um, booster. The reason this is a big deal is it's kind of the culmination of about 15 years of work at SpaceX to get to the point where you had a booster that you could launch land and then refly within a short period of time. Now they want to do it within 24 hours next year, that's what Elon said. Um, I don't think that's going to happen. But even if they got to the point where they could launch it, land it, and a week later fly it again, that would be a huge change. And and Because at that point you're talking about your turnaround costs are are pretty low and and you do get to a point where your incremental launch costs costs go way down. And and that really is kind of the Holy Grail um, that companies like SpaceX and Blue Origin are, are reaching for. And in theory, Um,
0: that's the plan, right? The thing launches, lands on the barge or back at the launch at sort of at near the launch pad, they bring it down, they move it to the launch pad, refuel it, put a new second stage on top and away it goes for its next launch within 24 hours.
1: Yeah. So, so, well, I don't think they would launch if they got it back on a boat, they wouldn't launch within 24 hours. That would be, have to be a land landing because then you could crawl it back to the, the, the hangar and. Put a second stage on it and a payload on it and go again. But I think really the significance of this is the fact that none of the government agencies were putting any money into this. So NASA tried it with the space shuttles when they developed in the 1970s. And you go back and look at some of the things that the agency was saying about it. Then you know this would usher in you know low cost, high flight rates, and, and obviously it never got there. Now the space shuttle is a much more complicated vehicle than the Falcon 9 rocket, but the fact remains that you know Arian Space. Uh, NASA, uh, the Russians, certainly Chinese, you know, none of them were really looking at developing reusable rockets until, until SpaceX and blue origin came along. Now they had, NASA had done things in the past. They'd done things like DCX and things like that, where they'd taken a stab at these different concepts, but they'd never pushed it through. And and frankly, you know, for the last decade and and looking ahead, they had no plans at all to look into this kind of reusable launch technology. And so that's why I think this is really significant.
0: Yeah. And I mean, there's, a lot of interesting changes they made we can get into some of that later on if people want to sort of find out more about that um but i know there's a couple of other things as well um electron is just about to launch their next payload um with the and i've mentioned this the uh, the rocket is called it's business time which is a reference to the flight of the concords i'm assuming um because it's a new zealand band and that's one of the songs that they're famous for so uh that's going to be Launching soon, and you were mentioning before about the what the Chinese are up to,
1: right? So the, the so so Electron is going to make the the, the third launch, um, and its business time was one of three names they had a poll, and so that was I'm sure that that was had a New Zealand New Zealand origin origin, given that Peter Beck, the founder of the company, is is, is from New Zealand. Yeah. Um, uh, but that what's interesting about that is they are kind of at the forefront of this small satellite launch industry, and you've got a bunch of other companies. Of racing to get to the launch pad as well, <clears throat> I suspect that um, the Virgin Orbit is going to get there next with a flight later this summer. Their um, their Launcher One taking off from an airplane, and then there are some other companies that are coming along soon after that. But you know, Rocket Lab has managed to get there first with this you know 200 to 500 kilograms payload to orbit class of, of vehicle,
0: and that's sort of a fairly unserved market at this point. Like if you want to, you know, if you want a cheap launch. For your CubeSat, you can sneak in somewhere, you know, um, in the trunk of Elon Musk's car. Uh, But if you want your own launch to your own specific orbit, there's not a lot of launch providers out there that can do that kind of smaller uh, launch provider.
1: No, there's a significant demand right now for sort of on demand. So you call them up and you get a launch within a few months or, you know, within a year of of a certain payload to a specific orbit. There's there's a lot of demand for that. There are literally dozens of companies that are seeking to address this problem, and so there probably will be a handful of winners. And so that's why I think Rocket Lab getting there first gives it, gives it a, a heads up in that in that battle.
0: Yeah. Uh, and then let's talk about what the Chinese are up to.
1: Right. So China's doing a lot of different things. Obviously, a couple of weeks ago, or, or it may have been less than a couple of weeks ago, I'm not sure the exact date, but they launched their their relay spacecraft that's, that's now made it to to kind of a lunar halo orbit where it'll have um, continuous vision of the far side of the moon where they're going to land something at the end of this year if they stick to their schedule, be able to take data and and information from that and then relay it it back to Earth. Um, And then just this evening, I guess it was Xinhua, the Chinese news service, so I guess their equivalent of Fox News, I don't know. (laughs) know, I don't know. (laughs) Um, I guess so, yeah. Xinhua Net put out the fact that their international space station was open for business to the world. So basically, they were drawing a contrast between the International Space Station, which specifically excludes China, um, and, and saying that our space station is going to be open to anyone in the world who wants to, to collaborate with us.
0: Yeah, the Chinese version of the International Space Station. Do you know what the orbit is planned for that?
1: I do not. Uh, no. I suspect it'll be something convenient to their launch sites. So probably less, lower than the lower inclination than the Russian than the International Space Station.
0: Right. So the same kind of orbit that we saw, say, with the Tangong 1, that we were all sort of watching over our heads as it was
1: going by. That would be my guess. I'm yeah. not sure they've even released those, those technical details publicly. Yeah. Was there anything else? Blue Origin. What's happening with Blue Origin? Not much. Not much publicly. There's yeah. a lot going on. There's a lot going on behind the scenes. It, it looks like the ninth flight of their New Shepard capsule is going to happen within the next couple months because they just put out um, the uh, FAA notification for the 10th flight. Um, I think sometime in September. So I think we can expect the ninth flight of new shepherd this summer and then the 10th flight. Yeah. And, uh, and there's a really interesting race going on now between them and, and Virgin Galactic because Richard Branson, the the founder of Virgin Galactic, which has its own private suburban space tourism system, um, is making noises about once again, flying within a couple of months on that system to, um, to low Earth orbit, and if it, it's, it's so, it's an interesting race between Branson and Bezos, who I think is going to go up one of the first human flights of New Shepard. Who, which of them is going to get to, to space first? Um, but that's kind of that's just you know it, it's interesting that the perception of Blue Origin off is often that it's some kind of vanity project for for Bezos, and, and and let's be honest, this it is a vanity project, but it's not it's not space tourism that he's after. It's really the orbital market, and that's yeah. with the Glenn vehicle, and so they are continuing to test their be4 engine i think that um they were up to about 70 percent of the, the the power in according to a recent disclosures of the be4 engine which is going to power this new glenn vehicle yep. and they're continuing to to work on that
0: and the you know his what's his um uh saying is it like step by step uh ferociously, ferociously. so uh and of course You know, Jeff Bezos uh, sells off a billion dollars worth of stock a year and uses that to personally fund Blue Origin, so he doesn't have to go through any of the sort of public, I guess, looking for clients that SpaceX is going through. So, uh, no, it's and it's
1: interesting. He was um, about a year and a half ago. uh, He was he invited a few journalists up to his factory, and so he was telling a story about how, like, you know let's say that the, they they built a test stand in West Texas, but then they decided that they needed another one. You know, mm-hmm. there was no need to go and, and do some kind of extensive study or convince a board of directors or, you know, go to the government or, you know, NASA put out a bid. It was basically like, okay, you know, you could just say, go build a second test stand and and here's the money and, and go do it. Yeah. Um, and actually, I think they have they have four test stands, maybe or two, yeah. they have at least two. I'm not sure. hundred percent. I haven't haven't got to the West Texas launch site yet, which obviously I'd love to do.
0: All right. So now I think people understand uh, sort of what Eric's uh, sort of field purview and also all the astronomy stuff that you're that you're covering as well. But uh, so I'd love to get some questions from the people who are watching this now and like no question, I think is too specific. So uh, I think uh, I, I'm going to just already just volunteer Eric for all the really tough questions. All right. So uh, Eldon Crom wants to know, what's the status of SpaceX's Raptor? Have they fired up a correctly sized version of that yet?
1: So they have not fired up a full size version. Uh, Tom Muller was at the International Space and Development Conference this past week in Los Angeles, and he got an award. And as part of that, he touched on the Raptor development and I believe he said something to the extent that they expect to have a flight-like version ready for testing next year. So, the subscale Raptor test that they, I think they showed that when Elon did his talk in 2016 at uh, the at the International Astronautical Conference, they're they're continuing to work up to the full scale test, full scale engine, probably next year.
0: And that was the that was sort of in tandem with the BFR, right?
1: That is the BFR uh, upper stage engine and main main engine. So that's their, that's they get that that's and you talk to anyone in the aerospace industry and the first step toward building a rocket is getting the engine. Yeah. So you know, and, and engine development is generally a, a seven year process. So the fact that they're a year away from, they're probably you know. So if they get that if they get a test engine on the test stand next year, then they'll test it for six or twelve months. They're probably you know, one and a half to two years away to having a flight-ready Raptor engine if they continue along this path that they're on.
0: But but didn't they, I mean, SpaceX has been saying that we were going to see the first uh, suborbital tests of, like, um, you know, hops of the BFR sometime next year and then maybe full orbit by 2020, right? So does that sort of... Sure. (laughs) Well, I understand that it's on... I mean, Musk's timelines are... you know, uh, not only Musk.
1: Not only Musk has said that, but but Gwen Shotwell has said that. She's the president and chief operating officer, and generally, she's a bit more conservative. Now, it's been really interesting to me, you know, watching the company to see Shotwell within the last six months or mm-hmm. three to six months really be much more bullish on the BFR. Um, so it was, it, it, you know, because you really wonder as a journalist whether this rocket is real, and I still wonder. <laughs> I do too. Yeah. Um, but it was interesting. It was at the at the Falcon Heavy launch um, the day before um, the launch. Elon talked to a few people at the launch pad to media, and I got to talk to him there. And, and it was, was striking to me because, like, he walks out of this black SUV. His family's in the SUV, and he sort of walks up to this spot where I'm standing waiting to talk to him. And the first thing he says is, that looks really small, doesn't it? And that and that really threw me because I couldn't tell if he was joking or if he was being serious. Mm -hmm. And I'm pretty sure, you know, upon reflection, talking to some people that he was being serious because his head was not really in the Falcon Heavy development or Block 5 development. He has been spending apparently his time on the BFR. Mm -hmm. So this is obviously a very serious thing to him. And now Gwen Shotwell is talking about these suborbital hops next year at the South Texas site. Um, I, I don't know about that. I mean, maybe they're going to be doing a like a subscale version of the the upper stage with the subscale Raptor engine. I, I don't know what their plans are. I would be shocked to see anything close to a full scale BFS Big Falcon spaceship to be PC about it. But the BFS hop test next year in in south texas yeah but i'd love to see it but you know we'll, I, I doubt it
0: but it is interesting the Chatwell is i mean i saw her interview as well on uh, was it ted or something like that where she was talking about these suborbital flights you know point to point across the planet and that really seemed to me like like of all of the things that the bfr can do and will be able to do that seems so far down the road of of sort of a feasible business strategy, like for the time being, for the next few decades, probably they're gonna launch constellations of satellites for much lower costs. They're gonna be able to do missions to the moon. They'll be able to send people to Mars or send you know, other missions to Mars. Like it sounds like there's a lot of space-based infrastructure that that people are going to want to get developed. And so I guess for her to bring that up as well as I can understand Musk just dreaming about it, right. But for her to bring it up as well, and she's a lot more pragmatic is is interesting, because it does, it did make me feel that things are further along than maybe we had been led to believe or how we would sort of thought.
1: Yeah, that I, I agree completely with you that it's hard enough, I think, to launch a rocket to go to the moon. Let alone go to Mars, but then to sort of navigate the thicket, uh, regulations and restrictions of launching, say, with you know within 30 miles of New York City, and then landing, you know, 30 miles away from Tokyo, and and setting up all the infrastructure to get people out to that launch pad, get them on board. I mean, I mean, it just. It, it seems it seems like that is forever and a day away. Yeah, you know, let alone something within the next to, decade
0: to bring in a decelerating rocket into a city, with the like, it's just there's so, there's so many. I things. mean, the fact
1: the fact of the matter is, they have spent you know most of this decade working on commercial crew, which is a Dragon spa- spacecraft on top of a rocket that exists, the Falcon Nine, the Dragon spacecraft existed, and they are you know sort of working with NASA under a lean. Um, program to get six people into orbit and six people home safely from orbit and if you think about the quantum leap of that to dozens or more people you know launching from earth on a commercial capacity to landing somewhere on earth i mean it is so far beyond i mean it just it just seems like a huge challenge and It's it's one of those things where SpaceX is doing so many things and promising so many things. You'd really like to see them focus on a few specific goals that they have the brilliant engineering talent to attain. But it seems like that point to point stuff seems almost like a distraction.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's the same thing. Like when I heard the breakthrough Starshot idea as a way to send spacecraft off to Alpha Centauri, I would love to see that technology just used to send spacecraft to Jupiter to the asteroid belt to to other places within the solar system like there's so much need for that kind of very rapid deployment it seems like you're sort of missing the forest for the trees but but again you know spacex is delivering so much sci-fi christmas at this point that we just can't you know so many christmas presents that i don't think we can necessarily look you know you know yeah, worry I mean, too much about it right like oh no the bfr is going to be here a year later the biggest yeah. rocket ever built capable of going directly to the moon and back and so on and so forth right so i you know i don't get too yeah. stressed out about it <laughs> uh people want to know i saw a couple of people talking about this uh any sort of update on the skylon have you been following the skylon and the, and and you know their engine and hopes to build that as a as a single stage to orbit
1: uh, I will say I do not know. No, um, the answer is no. And I'm skeptical.
0: Did you, I mean, did you ever cover that, the, that vehicle? No,
1: no, no. Yeah. Okay. Not to a great extent. I've, I've read about it, but I haven't done any first person reporting. Either.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about some of the first person reporting that you, that you have done. Who are some of the people that you've had a chance to, to talk to and what's, you know, what are some stuff that you think is pretty interesting right now?
1: Um. Well, let's see. Uh, one of the things I think that is, is, is really interesting is this thing we talked about, this small satellite launch business. I mean, this is really an area that, that's heating up. And, um, you know, recently I had a chance to go to the Virgin Orbit um, factory in, uh, in Southern California. And they have, like, an actual big rocket factory out there. They're building tanks and, and engines and, you know, for this launcher one vehicle, which is going to sit underneath the left wing. Of a, of a 747 aircraft and it's going to fly up to about 35,000 feet. And then a rocket is going to take off kind of like the, the it's Pegasus. Like, it's
0: like the Pegasus. Yeah. Or the yeah. straddle launch, but not quite as extreme.
1: Well, yeah, the straddle is, is they're supposed to fly that plane this year. I I, I hope that happens because I want to see it. But launcher one is a more appropriately sized rocket, I think, for the 747 aircraft because the Pegasus rocket's so small and it's going to be sitting under this, this monstrous, um, strata launch but but virgin you know that that will be really cool to see happen and you know it, again it's kind of this really truly commercial approach to spaceflight you know they have not had any public money for this and you know they're looking at a mix of government private and academic payloads um, but they're really trying to basically take the price of a Pegasus and you know cut you know 75 to ninety percent off the price of, of that launch system um, and so, if they succeed in that, again, you know, companies like SpaceX get all the attention for doing the impressive things that they've done with launch costs with the Falcon 9. but but sort of doing that same thing with the commercial sized you know smaller payloads would be would be extremely impressive as well. Yeah. Um... And then, And then if you keep keep going down that road, you know you have this proliferation of, of 3d launch, you know, the, the additive manufacturing is, is such this this hot buzzword in, in aerospace right now. But, you know, you have 3D printed engines that Aero, companies like Aerojet, Rocketdyne are talking about. Then you have Relativity Space out there talking about printing the entire. Yeah, they were know,
0: able to bring it down to about 100 parts, weren't they?
1: It's, I think it's, yeah, something like that. I mean, it's, it's on the order of. You know a few percentage points of the parts of a, of an, of another rocket. Yeah. Now I don't know if they're going to get there. They've 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 test fired some of their engines, but you know we are really witnessing kind of this infusion of of technology. You know we talked we talked a little while ago kind of about how none of the there was really this stasis with rocket development. The Russians weren't developing new you know many new boosters. In the U.S. you know NASA was working on SLS and. Um, or, or Ares 5 and then SLS and, and, and ULA had its rockets that you know the, the Atlas and the Delta line. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of innovation you know up until about ten years ago and, and in the last 10 years there's been this incredible flowering of innovation. Um, and I thought so that to me is really kind of the most exciting thing we're, we're seeing in the industry right now is is technology being forcefully applied to the launch industry?
0: Yeah, you're seeing all of these separate pieces coming together. You're seeing this reusable rocketry, which is, you know, by itself, this gigantic, you know, step forward. You're seeing the, as you said, the, you know, the 3D printing, the additive technology, you know, ways to manufacture all the different parts of a rocket more cheaply and expensively. Ideas about more, uh, you know, better fuels, you know, like a methane, as, as opposed to, you know, kerosene as a way, you know, the plan for the BFR is that you can just make the fuel right out of the air, which is a pretty exciting prospect they actually get that fuel factory going. So sort of not so bad on the environment. And then you're seeing that matched up with at the same time, this miniaturization of the satellites, you're seeing CubeSats and the ability to get a lot more science done for a fraction of the of the of the weight. And and what this is going to it feels now that this is just this big infrastructure play that's then going to move us forward and then 10 years from now 20 years from now the kinds of payloads the kinds of things that make sense to launch will be things that will be i'm sure we're going to find really surprising we're like oh i never thought this would be the kind of thing we're going to see space mining we're going to see and especially all of these high-speed internet satellites you know where i live the cell phone coverage is terrible and i would love to be able to get high speed internet to you know more remote regions so all of these coming together i i I totally agree with you Uh, hit us up with a bunch of questions while you're and you've already asked a question i didn't get to it by all means please just put it back in again and i will sort of pick up another round. Uh, So now you've got a cool newsletter that I think people should check out. I'm gonna put it up on the the browser, but uh, let people know
1: about it. Yeah, so actually we just started it um, last Thursday was the first edition, but the idea was to... uh, So I've worked in the past with a guy named Jay Rosen. He's a um, pretty widely known journalism professor at, at New York University. And one of the things that he's always been interested in is collaborative journalism. So, you know, reporters working with readers as sources, or or having them contribute 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 to the story. And the idea that that we came up with through this was to create a newsletter um, about what what are my what are readers of technically really interested in? Well, they read they really read stories that are about launch vehicles. Um, what do they know? They actually know a lot about these things too.
0: Yeah. Surprising so this, amount.
1: Yeah. Right. Right. So, and it, so the idea was to sort of harness that talent and create a collaborative newsletter. And so basically, um, we created something called the rocket report where I'm out there finding, you know, some of my stories will going into that, but, but typically it's, you know, stories from lots of other publications as well. And, and, and I'm using them to, to kind of help find these stories about other companies. Because obviously, in in my business, it's very easy to cover the SpaceXs. It's very easy to cover the NASA's and and to some extent the Blue Origin, the United Launch Alliance. But there has been this real flowering of companies and around the world. And so there are literally dozens and dozens of dozens and dozens of launch companies with vehicles in different states of development. And I wanted to have, I wanted our coverage to be more inclusive of that. So not just to be about SpaceX and not just to be about NASA, but to sort of try to cover the whole industry. Um, and so I'm, I'm asking readers to help sort of that, to diversify our coverage. And so the result basically is that once a week we publish something called the Rocket Report. It's free and it has updates on small lift, medium lift and heavy lift vehicles. And, you know, maybe 10 or 15, 15 stories in each, each newsletter.
0: All right, so OT resident wants to know, how soon will SpaceX and Boeing launch humans? So place your bets. When do you think we'll see the first human being on board, either a Boeing or a SpaceX Dragon 2? Bonus points, Who? which, which goes first?
1: Okay, so uh, breaking news. Uh, I haven't actually written about this, but the crews of the first Starliner, Boeing Starliner and SpaceX Dragon will be announced next month, um, I think, probably toward the end of June. Um, so they will actually name a couple of astronauts for each of those vehicles. There are four commercial crew astronauts right now, Eric Bowe, uh, Sonny Williams, uh, Doug Hurley, and uh, Bob Behnken. Um, they've been training, they've been you know going to SpaceX and Boeing over the last couple of years to understand those vehicles, but they will actually get assigned to flights. Um, and so that tells me that nasa thinks that they are probably nine to twelve months away from the first crewed flights and so i would put um probably if, if i had to put money i would say the first one goes um uh, in may or june of, of 2019.
0: and do you think um, it'd be boeing or spacex
1: well that's a, that's a great question um I, I have my ear pretty close to the ground on this and i people who would know tell me they don't know okay <laughs> yeah. um but I get the sense that that Boeing is a little bit ahead. Um, they they have um, they have their rocket, obviously the Atlas V, um, and they're building they're building lots of Starliners in Florida. Um, now SpaceX has their rocket now too, the Block Five. It's still got to get seven flights in. That'll right.
0: happen. They'll have that like um, next Thursday, by next Thursday.
1: Yeah, no. <laughs> hopefully by hopefully by the end of the year, um, or certainly early next year. Um, the and there was actually a big development last week for SpaceX the Aerospace Safety Advisory Panel, which is kind of this collection of people who sit around and are very sort of look at any possible thing that could potentially affect the safety of a human, mm-hmm. um, you know, flying, flying into space, and so they're very I don't want to say nitpicky, but they're, they, they really get in the knickers of these <laughs> launch vehicles and companies and, and try to find potential problems. They, they seem to suggest the load and go process, which basically means that you put the crew on board the, the Dragon spacecraft, which SpaceX wants to do. You put the crew on board and then you, you basically fill the rocket in you know, the last 50 minutes before flight and then you go. That's, that's how SpaceX launches cargo now and that's how they want to launch crew. The, the and NASA had been really hemming and hawing about the safety of that procedure, but it seems like that's going to get a green light probably, and that that's a big step forward for SpaceX. Um, but they each still have a lots of lots of hurdles to to jump through to get to, to flight. And I just think Boeing, having done this for 50 years and having such a close relationship with NASA, probably keeps them a little bit ahead. But it's by no no means a, a decided race at this point.
0: Yeah i yeah i I think it's you know boeing does have that history and is sort of seen as this kind of legacy um company with this with this background and all of these relationships So i wouldn't be surprised if they're the ones that get out of the gate first just because of the history and it does feel a little bit like spacex has some extra hurdles that they're having to get across just because the company is so new so that's the part that does feel, I don't know if, if, if Musk would say it's unfair, but, you know, just the fact that as being a newer space company, they are seen with a little more uh, suspicion than something that's more tried and true. So. Musk
1: would say it was unfair, and, and someone very high up in the aerospace community told me recently that SpaceX was ahead in hardware, but Boeing was ahead in paperwork. Um, right, there you so. go i don't know if that's i don't know if that's actually right because boeing has a launch tower and they have they have they have lots of they have they're they're making credible progress but you know we'll we should find out within about a year like we'll actually see it's great it's finally it's exciting that it's finally almost here after a long wait
0: yeah um so arjon wants to know uh, what do you think is the near future of assembling or 3d printing in space or on another surface so where do you think we are in the state of 3D, of doing that additive manufacturing, but in space?
1: Well, Made in Space is already doing additive manufacturing um, in space, and they're actually you know, continuing to make you know, pretty significant advantages. I think they're going to start doing some metal 3D printing um, pretty soon if they haven't, haven't already. And so it's happening. Um, they made a wrench. Well, they've, they've they 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 made a wrench. They made a lot of they made a lot of other things, and they have like really ambitious big plans about you know doing doing stuff in space. Uh, I mean, I think ultimately, if we're ever really going to get out there and do things, we need to use the materials at hand. So, if we're going to have a lunar base, it either needs to be in the lava tunnels, and we need to figure out how to use the regolith on the surface to make some kind of structures that help for humans. And the same thing on Mars. I mean we can't bring all that stuff with us. And so we're gonna to have to figure that out. And so we are in the experimental phase now. It's impossible to say how long that experimental phase will last until the point where we actually get to practical um, practical usage of these materials. But it's it's a field that companies are actively exploring.
0: I mean it definitely you know, especially if you're going to go all the way to Mars and, and the moon and places like that, it's a lot more straightforward if you've mastered being able to 3D print some of the parts and and structures that you're going to require for people to figure stuff up on Earth and then just send you a, a blueprint to, that you can then build out of the materials that you have on hand, as opposed to having to send resupply spacecraft containing, you know, all of the parts that you required. But at the same time, there's going to be these these limits to it as well i think
1: i think i think the the near-term killer application for that would be being able to print parts to repair your spacecraft yeah and so we have you know we have the apollo 13 example obviously if you had had a 3d printer in the apollo capsule you probably could have come up with some kind of a, a a bigger solution and or like we saw i think it was 2005 2006 it was when they were trying to deploy the um the solar panels on the International Space Station for the first time, and Scott Perzinski, they fashioned this um, pair of cufflinks, like like cufflinks to to help the, the space station um, solar panels expand. He goes out there on the tip of this, you know, uh, the, the arm, just sort of hanging off at the edge of the station, pretty pretty risky spacewalk, and, and gets the fix, and basically that allows them, gives them enough energy to continue expanding the space station. Um, uh, again, you know in space flight, and especially if you're beyond Earth orbit where you can't come home right away you're going to things are going to go wrong and you're going to have to fix your vehicle um, and so if you have some kind of a three d printer on board your spacecraft and the feedstock, you have a lot of options to address whatever hardware issues crop up along the way and so I think that that is a, is a potentially a really powerful use of the technology uh, I
0: had another question um Oh. And so Arjun also asked what space idea that's brewing right now uh, will be too soon, but will actually be really useful later. So what's the sort of, uh, you know, larger concept that maybe people are working on that's going to really sort of help out down the road that isn't, say, 3D printing?
1: Right. So I think, you know, the, the larger the larger issue is is power. Um and, and specifically, power in space, but but even more so, power on the surface of another planet. Everyone who saw the Martian, you know, knows that that he had an RTG for for power on the surface of Mars. Um, the fact is that that technology doesn't exist today. Um, and uh, if you're going to go to the surface of Mars and want to have any kind of a meaningful stay there, you know, you need some kind of you need to move beyond solar panels. Um, and so NASA just recently announced the results of this kilopower yep. um, plan. But, I, you know, I've talked to some other people in the industry, and they're kind of like, well, that's a nice, you know, example, but it's not really the kind of thing you need for human hmm. human activity. Um, and so if we're going to do power in spaceflight, um, and specifically power for things like electrical propulsion um, throughout the solar system, um, you, things like nuclear thermal propulsion or, or surface power, we really need to get serious about nuclear energy sources, um, and NASA's taking some steps like on that, there's some interesting work being done at Marshall Space Flight Center in Alabama, but there's nothing being done right now that leads me to believe we're going to have a viable Mars base right. in my lifetime.
0: It's funny, whenever we talk about nuclear rockets in, you know, when we do some of our episodes in the Guide to Space, and I'm always having to dig up these old videos from the 1960s and 70s that they were testing out nuclear (laughs) rockets. Um, And now, finally, we've got the Kilopower, which is this fission reactor that's going to provide electricity. Now, the, but the Soviets, they made a bunch of their spacecraft with fission reactors on them. So, I mean, a fission reactor on a spacecraft is not a new concept. It, you know, it's been pretty tested and, and works, but it's, you know, is it is it more, is it a bureaucracy? Is it a weapons it's, proliferation it's,
1: problem? It's an environmental slash, you know, political will kind of thing of, of building the support for these kinds of, using these kinds of technologies, space flight, like the engineering you know, know-how is there, obviously, and that's you know that's one of the things where if you really were going to put together a serious international program to go to the surface of Mars, you know that's where you might bring in the French or the Russians um, and to sort of develop these systems. But again, you know, the optics of the U.S. relying on Russian nuclear technology, you know, g- given all of the proliferation concerns with North Korea, it's just hard for me sometimes to see us getting past these geopolitical questions to getting this this meaningful exploration but that's the kind of thing that you have to do if you really want to get serious about this this kind of exploration
0: yeah um but i mean what is the so i mean if the power isn't big enough and that's, you're the first person that i've actually talked to that that sort of has have mentioned that you know, solar power is the way a lot of this stuff has been done or rtgs like what's on curiosity, and it's gonna be on the Mars 2020. And the killer power is like the the next version up above that. And of course, you know, if you can get um, an even more powerful reactor, then you can start doing some of those more powerful uh, ion engines, things like that, that actually give you a much more efficient fuel system. I mean, what does it look like, then is it as the sort of the, the power that you're talking about, like a like a nuclear power plant on the surface of Mars, like something that's more like, you know, with the cooling towers. Like, is that the kind of scale that we're looking at?
1: No, I think you're looking at probably a large RTG source, and and but sort of some kind of megawatt power plant. Um, I'm not a nuclear engineer. I yeah. couldn't tell you what your best best system is. I just know enough to basically understand that you know, we're not really working on these kinds of research projects or engineering. Well, if I was
0: at if I was your assignments editor at Ars Technica, I would assign you that story.
1: (laughs) Well, that would be that would be a good story for me to pursue. I'll have to put that. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
0: uh, All right, I'll take some more questions if anyone's got some more questions. Otherwise, um, what about the James Webb Space Telescope? Uh, pieces are still falling off of it. That's probably
1: (laughs) not a good thing.
0: I was wondering about that. Now, of course, my plan is to take the whole James Webb space telescope to encase it in maybe a block of glass and put it in a museum somewhere so that it never fails.
1: (laughs) So, so, you know, the thing about the James Webb, they're getting a lots of grief for, for really being, you know, going through all these problems. But the fact of the matter is, you know, if you have one chance to launch it safely into space and you have one chance for it to expand, you know, once you get there and, you know, you have this basketball sized, um, uh, the, the sun shield, basketball court sized sun shield and, and so forth, they've really got one chance to make this work. And it's extremely complicated. I mean, uh, John Grunsfeld, former NASA astronaut, was director of the science director at NASA for several years, um, retired, you know, a, a year and a half ago or so. Um, don't, don't hold me to the dates on that, but basically said, you know, that there is a lot of soul search go- searching going on there because the risks of this are so high. And so yeah. they have this long, complicated, expensive testing program for the James Webb, but that's because the process to getting it to unfurl correctly in space is long and complicated and everything's got to go just right. And so I think the whole you know, astronomical community basically has its, its – it's holding its breath to make sure that this instrument works once it gets into space. Um, and so on one hand, it's kind of, you know, everyone, everyone pretty much groans because you can, about every six months, you can expect some kind of a delay announcement on, on James Webb. Um, and that's very frustrating, but on the other hand, you know, it's, 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 they got one chance to make this work and, and, and they don't want to screw it up. Now, I, I will tell you what, one thing that was really pretty disturbing to me was during their last conference call about this, the NASA officials said, that they were putting a lot more NASA people and the contractor was putting a lot more senior people over this program because they'd had all these delays and, and that just really made me wonder why, why that hadn't been done before. I mean this is a, a nine or ten billion dollar project, the, you know, the astronomical community has d- devoted, you know, a decade of resources to this and, and longer in terms of development um, why that hadn't already happened? I mean, why don't you already sort of have everyone watching yeah, this this yeah. program to make sure it, it comes through?
0: I mean, it, I mean, part of it is the, the just the sense of scale. Like when people people were so excited about the test launch, and I've heard test described as the finder scope for the James Webb Space Telescope. It is a the scale of construction to build something like the James James Webb Space Telescope is just is just mind bending, and. You know and the the money that's gone into it and the technical challenges they've had to overcome and as you said you know they only get one shot of it you know they can't go up and fix it they can't send Mike Massimino and his team to to go fly out to l2
1: and uh, you know they they're not putting anything on it for like a, for like a something to go grapple with it, it like but I thought
0: it has a docking ring on it they actually put a ring on it so that it can you know in the future maybe get clamped
1: so I don't think so. Really? Or, okay. Or or, or or maybe it wasn't. Maybe maybe yeah. maybe you're right. But it's like there's there's the interfaces. It's not designed to be opened up or worked on. You know at all. Oh, oh for sure,
0: for sure. But but you know who knows, right? BFR who flies yeah. out, grabs it, scoops it up, brings it home. You never know. And there's a lot of the fixes they had to make to the.
1: We're we're trying to live in the real world over here. I know. Much. I
0: understand. I understand. I'm, I'm. It. Listen, people. It's either that or it's my big. Bl- block of glass and you can look at it in the museum and that's where James Webb is going to live forever so that it can never, it can never die and, and, and leave us. Um, but the I mean we've already run up against or the, the construction of the James Webb has run up to the law that Congress put in place to say how much they're allowed to spend in, on this topic. So what do you think is going to happen at this point? I mean,
1: So last week uh, Jim Bridenstine, the new NASA administrator, um, was before Congress for the first time. And and let me just say that that you know he had a very trying confirmation process. <laughs> yes, um, he it did. Was a, it was a party line vote, um, and and you know the Trump administration, frankly, has put up a lot of stinker nominees for some of the for some of these positions. Um, but and Bridenstine certainly has a partisan past. But I think of of the potential choices, he was he had he could be pretty good for the space agency, and I, and I still I still think that. And actually, since he's become administrator. You know, he's done, done a lot of pretty good things. He's been very inclusive in his, the talks that he's given, spoken about, you know, all of NASA for the whole, you know, doing things for the whole country. And, you know, he's talked about climate change being real, and he's had an evolution of his views on that. Um, and so I, I think I, I would encourage people to give him a second chance or give him a chance despite the, the confirmation process. Any, but anyway, he was before NASA and was asked about the James Webb. I forget the senator. Who, who asked him? But right. he basically said that that yes, they're in the process of doing this analysis of to find out a new launch date to set a new launch date, and as part of that, are they going to bump up against the cost ceiling that the cost cap that 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 Congress has imposed on on that? And if so, he was said he would very humbly have to come back to Congress and and ask for more money. I suspect they'll bump into that cost cap because that seems what always happens, but but he said they we should know this summer. So probably in the next month or two. Yeah.
0: Yeah. A lot of people have been asking me sort of what I think about Bridenstine and, you know, my perspective is, you know, he had a rough start. He recanted the global warming, uh, climate change approach, which was good. And now, and he's definitely a big space nerd. So now it's just a matter for him to take action. And so we're waiting for him to, definitively take actions that will then give you a much better sense of where he stands but right now the things he says i'm fine with them so yeah. just keep keep going you Yeah so i mean the thing, the, th-
1: the thing you have to remember with the administrator is they are carrying out the priorities of the the administration and so behind closed doors we can't be sure what he's advocating for within the white house and that's really you know Mike pence and in the vice president's office um you know, and I'm sure people have lots of different opinions about about Mike Pence, but I I will say this, you know, you look at the how the U.S. government has functioned for the last year and a half in a lot of different areas, and one of the areas that's been relatively steady and hasn't been a real crap show has been space policy, and I don't think it's a coincidence that that's being run out of the vice president's office, um, yeah. almost entirely.
0: Uh, Nuno Fernandez asks the military spy telescopes that are already being used for science, are they really better than Hubble? So is that probably a reference to W first? That's what I was thinking. Yeah. And so just sort of like, I mean, the, the fact that the W first telescope is a, is a, is one of two satellites that the national reconnaissance office got handed over to NASA because they weren't good enough anymore is fascinating. What do you think is the sort of state? of their current reconnaissance uh satellites
1: i think the current military spy telescopes are trying to find the zuma spacecraft <laughs> no I I, who knows? I, mean, I I don't know i'm not in the military um i'm sure they have outstanding spy telescopes i don't think they're probably looking back to the beginning of the universe for intelligence though they're probably using them for non largely non-scientific means.
0: they're just yeah they're they're looking at every spot on earth from above at as high resolution as they can possibly get that's right and then running it all through enormous computers yes. uh what, but what do you think the x37 does
1: uh, that's a great question i honestly think it is is it's a number it serves probably a number of different masters but i think you know i think the military is genuinely interested in people you know putting using military in space whether it's to have some kind of installation maybe at, at GEO or, or some kind of activity like that. Um, so I think that they're interested in a much lower cost launch um, and I think the X-37B you know, could be sort of some kind of test bed for some you know, future human, human missions among other spy capabilities. Um, clearly the military wasn't happy in the 1970s when basically under the Carter administration they were told to work with NASA on the launch vehicles. And then after Challenger in 1986, they, they essentially got the green light under the Reagan administration to go their own way, and they have. And so they're, they're just looking at, you know, they're doing lots of different things. As to what particular spy purposes the X-37B is used for, I don't have any idea.
0: I, I mean, my theory is that it's a big box that they put things that they want to know how they experience space. And then they bring it back to Earth, and they open it up, and they look at what happened to the things. I think that's right. I mean, I think it's a test bed. Yeah, so they put put detectors, and they put camera systems, and they put um, various kinds of materials, and they just see how these things experience a year in space and then they bring it all back to earth because it, the fact that it returns right this is mm-hmm. what you need and there's very few places apart from sticking a little you know a little bit of cargo in a dragon capsule when it returns to earth and lands on u.s soil there's not a lot of ways for the military and for any of these people to just test out different materials in a ideally in a you know in a top secret way to be able to just see what they do so that's you know that's what i suspect it is it's, it's just for materials testing
1: yeah i mean know. after the space shuttle you know yeah. went away they, but even the that.
0: space shuttle right it was you know they, they didn't have a lot of opportunities to do classified reconnaissance right. that's right launches that's right. and so they've now got their own vehicle that they can send up to space with whatever cargo they want inside of it and they can bring it back down and see how it did and mm-hmm. and You know, nothing more fancy than that, I think. Um, Got about uh, seven minutes uh, left. Uh, Have you heard of Buzz Aldrin's cycler concept? This is something that Arjun or Anon is talking about.
1: Yeah, yeah. But Buzz Aldrin for literally decades has talked about this cycler, which would essentially be a a spacecraft that cycles between – uh, Earth orbit, or sort of Earth and Mars, and it never lands on Mars, it never lands on Earth. It's kind of like the spacecraft, I think, in The Martian, the yeah. same kind of concept. Um, but basically, like, you would build one, and then you would have an easy, a relatively easy way to get people to and from Mars, and you wouldn't need to launch everything like you did with the Apollo, Apollo paradigm. But that's, that's the basic concept. Maybe he's been talking about it for, you know, he's been talking about it for a long time.
0: Yeah. And it's just a it's just a scale of infrastructure. I mean, I think that's that's what a lot of people they've moved, you know, 50 years in advance in their imaginations of what kind of infrastructure is going to be is going to be possible, you know, where we they want. They want to talk about rotating O'Neill cylinders um, when still. I mean, we don't even have like the Nautilus X, which was that great Thing they're going to add to the space station or maybe they're going to add it now to the to the deep space gateway that that to just have any kind of research into what artificial gravity is possible that you know that that cycler you know you're probably going to want an, an ion engine using uh you know that nuclear reactor like a lot of this it's just it's just infrastructure
1: That was that was the thing that was most troubling to me about the Martian is that people looked at that and NASA was like really involved in in promoting it and sort of, you know, it synced with their journey to Mars. But I I don't think that there was a fundamental appreciation that especially the spacecraft shown in that, you know, in that movie was so far beyond the current capabilities of of any country on Earth, you know, let alone NASA. And in in terms of funding, I mean, that was a multi-trillion-dollar spacecraft. I mean, in my opinion, basically, you know, doing what it did. So I, I, I fear that it it gave people unrealistic expectations about the ease of going to Mars and, and sort of the kinds of technologies we would have when we would do it. I mean, we are literally have spent, and I'm not downgrading the commercial crew program. I think it's great. We have, you know, literally spent seven years to develop capsules, to get people to and from earth orbit. (laughs) To recreate the Gemini. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's it's yeah I mean it's 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 yeah I mean it, it it's that it's it, and and you know and and the Orion spacecraft is is being touted up but with the existing SLS you know system Orion service module it basically can recreate Apollo 8 missions but that's it you know and there's and there's nothing beyond that the gateway excuse me it's the lunar orbiting platform dash gateway you right. know will give it somewhere to go but Fundament- fundamentally it doesn't you know it doesn't get us much closer to that big spaceship going to Mars
0: yeah yeah and and so and but then but then we got to go back to that earlier conversation that we had which is like we're we're excited about the BFR and the Falcon Heavy and all of these new technologies and these small launch companies and all this in situ research resource development and 3D printing and all that kind of stuff, you know, as these all this hopeful infrastructure that's that's moving forward, then on the flip side, all of this sci fi technology that we're fascinated about and don't even get started about warp drives and wormholes and, you know, and all that kind of stuff like that's so far never <laughs> you know, yeah, know that and em drives and and so on uh i i definitely enjoyed your your em the, the em drive that happened that came out in uh in Ars technica a couple of days ago uh yeah that, that was, was... Uh, that was that was that that was a bit of a backlash
1: People are always, you know, looking for the easy solutions to complicated problems, and generally, generally, they don't exist. And you know, you, you talk about the BFR, and I think the rocket is something that SpaceX can do, but it's that spaceship that is so, yeah, um, so so transcendent. I mean, if they get the BFS flying, that'll be an amazing, amazing achievement.
0: It's a single stage to orbit, and then with the the actual first stage again on top of that is just is amazing. Yeah. So yeah. again, I catch myself just going back and forth like we're never going to get anywhere we're we're living in science fiction future and i just go back and forth and i think that that tension is perfectly fine you know just keep going back and forth um we've got just a couple of minutes left so i just want to give again a sort of an opportunity for people to know where they can find out more about about what you work on so so where so you're reporting on on ours technica what are some of the stories recently that you've worked on that people should come and check out
1: well, I did a long feature on the, the block five launch that basically talked about all the work that had gone into that and, and where that rocket is going. Um, and then in the next couple next week or so, I hope to have this the feature on on Virgin Orbit as well.
0: Yeah, that was a surprise. I had not even heard about this at all. So so you totally again scooped me and everybody. So that's fantastic. Uh, and of course, the uh, the rocket report, which you can go and sign up. And then how often does that does that come
1: out? and we're hoping to come out every thursday at around noon and but
0: you're you're looking for contributions from your audience as well right
1: yeah that link that you provided people can go sign up for the newsletter but they can also uh there's also a place there for people to submit ideas either for us to cover as stories or existing stories just links that people found are interesting about launch vehicles to share those
0: and uh arjon is saying that your greatest leap articles were great
1: Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, that's a big series we ran at the end of, of 2017, the beginning of this year, that looked back at the the Apollo program. And, and I know a lot of these, the older engineers and astronauts and flight directors who worked in that program, they live in Houston. And so we went out and interviewed them on video and, and did a nice seven-part series about that program. Yeah.
0: Well, and uh, again, another reminder, uh, like I said, Eric, and I hope now at the end of this hour, you guys can see why I'm such a big fan of, of Eric's work over at Ars Technica, highly recommend follow him on Twitter, sci guy space. I have it memorized, um, and, uh, and read his work on, on Ars Technica, get involved with the rocket report newsletter and, uh, and sort of help contribute to, to all of this burgeoning new space industry. Eric, thank you so much for joining us on this live QA. Uh, everyone give a thumbs up. And, uh, and then follow him uh, at, on, with his regular reporting. And, and thanks for, you know, showing up and hanging out with us.
1: Totally my pleasure, Frazier. Thank you so much to you and your, your viewers. Really appreciate All right. it.
0: All right. Thanks a lot, man.